This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, you're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine. On this program, we invite poets to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. Then, they read a poem of their own that's been published in the magazine. Today, my guest is Amanda Gorman, who served as the first-ever National Youth Poet Laureate, received a 2020 Poets and Writers Barnes & Noble Writers for Writers Award, and in 2021, became the youngest inaugural poet in U.S. history. Amanda, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So the first poem you've selected to read today is Declaration by Tracy K. Smith. Tell us, what was it about this particular poem that caught your eye as you're looking through the archive? Mm. I love this poem because for me, it's really a masterclass in the erasure poem, which is to say, how do you approach a pre-existing text and discover, interrogate, find new meaning of what has been left unsaid. And so this is a poem that Tracy K. Smith wrote, basically reapproaching the Declaration of Independence as a, a site of deep racial reckoning. Well, let's listen to the poem. Here's Amanda Gorman reading Declaration by Tracy K. Smith. Declaration. He has sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people. He has plundered our, ravaged our, destroyed the lives of our, taking away our, abolishing our most valuable, and altering fundamentally the forms of our. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here, taken captive on the high seas to bear. That was Declaration by Tracy K. Smith, which was published in the November 6, 2017 issue of the magazine. So I love that you picked that poem. I think it does a lot of what you say, but it also has this wonderful repetition in its petitionness. How did you come to erasure and understand what she was doing with that? Mm. 
Really, whenever I read Tracy K. Smith, I'm reading it as a student. I think she has so much to teach me. And something that I love about the way she approaches this poem is the way in which she completely deconstructs a text which has become so familiar, so familial, I'll say, in kind of political literature. And I love the way you can't necessarily hear it, but she adds a lot of M dashes into this text, which feels very Emily Dickinson-like, but I think at least when I read it, it adds this sense of breathlessness, of being cut off, of something being left unsaid. And I think that has such a particular prevalence with what we're seeing in terms of racial violence, in terms of COVID and health inequality, this idea of attempting to say something that matters and your breath or your life being cut out before. I love that, the unsaid. I mean, and it makes sense for erasure then to kind of represent because it's thinking of a larger erasure. I mean, I always think of erasure as rather political, though sometimes I think it gets depoliticized and it's like a parlor trick or something. <laughs> but I think when Tracy or Robin Costa Lewis does it, mm. they're really having us think about the origin of language and who gets to say what, perhaps, but also what's not said, as you put it. Absolutely. What do you think about the we here? Is the we transformed, do you think? Um, and you're someone who's written about this we, trying to think about the broadest American we, let's call it. How do you contend with that in this poem? Mm. I think in an American context, we often take for granted who counts as represented in the we. For example, taking this text of the Declaration of Independence wherein the we would have more so stood for a white landed elite that was male, which would have been contesting against the crown. But in this poem, she adds legitimacy and stakes to the we that we can see the we now is the others that have been left out of that collective. I think particularly Black bodies, as we've seen in how she writes the last line, taken captive on the high seas to bear. Here we have this quote-unquote revolutionary movement against the British Empire for liberty and freedom, and yet people are still in bondage. And so I, I really try to learn from the way in which she interrogates. We're using we while not recognizing those who have been erased by that very same term. But this is why I often say I think eraser poems actually unerase. They make something else more visible. And that's the type of lens I try to look at that format through. You put it beautifully. I used to write about and still am a huge fan of Jean-Michel Basquiat. And he used to cross out words all the time. And someone said, you know, why do you cross out these words? And he said, I, I do it so you want to read them more, you know. <laughs> and, and there is that kind of quality, I think, um, at work here. A hundred percent. What else about the poem struck you? Something that I also think Tracy is excellent at, which you might not be able to perceive in a spoken word recitation, is the way in which she completely commands the page. And so thinking about white space in whiteness, thinking about how format of the declaration that we take for granted as kind of being written in stone, she plays with that. And so it's not just kind of cutting off or cutting into the middle of words, 
but letting them kind of stand on their own. And so, for example, to keep hitting that same note, at the end, it's taken captive on the high seas to bear. Those sentiments are given their own kind of gravitas and weight because they matter. It's kind of the largesse of what's been left unreconciled. And so it has to stand on its own. Well, and it's, you know, the words to bear are bearing a lot there, you know, and, mm-hmm. and they have those homonyms of bearing one soul, but also mm-hmm. bearing up. And I think it's really powerful, as you say. And I, I think I almost take for granted how much that white space, as you put it, the negative space, she's kind of turning into a positive. And I think that's really a powerful thing. And, you know, it's something that I want to talk about with you briefly uh, when we turn to your work, um, because I think you very much think about the page uh, in this new book and are, are thinking about it in inventive ways. And I want to talk about that, too. Awesome. Now, on December 6, 2021, The New Yorker published a sequence of poems from your book, Call Us What We Carry, including Ship's Manifest, which you'll read for us momentarily. Is there anything you'd like to tell us about the poem first? Anything listeners might need to know before hearing it? All I would say before you kind of engage with it is when I wrote Ship's Manifest, I originally wasn't necessarily writing it for readers. I was writing it for myself. It was my way to kind of fashion a thesis statement I could follow and create the rest of the book. And so it more so was my own manifesto, my own type of declaration, that is to say, of what I was setting out to do. Here's Amanda Gorman reading her poem, Ship's Manifest. Ships manifest. Allegedly, the worst is behind us. Still, we crouch before the lip of tomorrow, halting like a headless hand in our own house, waiting to remember exactly what it is we're supposed to be doing. And what exactly are we supposed to be doing? Penning a letter to the world as a daughter of it. We are writing with a vanishing meaning, our words water dragging down a windshield. The poet's diagnosis is that what we have lived has already warped itself into a fever dream, the contours of its shape stripped from the murky mind. To be accountable, we must render an account, not what was said, but what was meant. Not the fact, but what was felt. What was known, even while unnamed. Our greatest test will be our testimony. This book is a message in a bottle. This book is a letter. This book does not let up. This book is awake. This book is a wake. For what is a record but a reckoning? The capsule captured, a repository, an arc articulated, and the poet, the preserver of ghosts and gains, our demons and dreams, our haunts and hopes. Here's to the preservation of a light so terrible. That was Ship's Manifest by Amanda Gorman. 
You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. I love this poem um, as one you picked because it's part of the sequence from your new book, Call Us What We Carry. But it's also, I think, a manifest about our time uh, and thinking about it in broad ways. And I, I wondered how much you were thinking about our time, which I think courses through the whole book, but specifically in this poem. A hundred percent. I think I wanted to kind of write what I might call an occasional book. Often as poets, we think of occasional poems. So these types of pieces, which are written for specific cultural moments or periods in time, I wanted to take that and kind of broaden it. So as opposed to one lyric, it becomes many, which are all kind of ruminating on the specific sociopolitical, cultural, emotional considerations that are happening right now. Well, I love how you put it. You say uh, this book is awake, as in wide awake, and then this book is awake. How are you balancing those themes throughout the book? Well, I think for me, it's recognizing that being awake, meaning having your eyes open and recognizing the wake, meaning the death and the loss, aren't mutually exclusive. In fact, I think they're entirely codependent on each other. And so we have to look at the ghosts in order to kind of reconcile with the living. We have to think about what we've lost to think about what we still have to gain. And so instead of trying to balance those two ideas, for me, it's trying to give them as much of a full arena by which to engage with each other. When you mention our testimony here, again, this hour, uh, how is your hour different? Um, how are you thinking about our and the we differently in this poem, um, perhaps than uh, Tracy Kay's poem, but also than your own? Oh, that's interesting. Honestly, I think the hour shifts in many different periods of the book and it encapsulates everybody. And then sometimes it, uh, might not even attempt to do so. Um, I think with my hour, it is a word that has to get used over several hundred pages as opposed to single poem, which means by definition, it is multifaceted. By definition, it is ever-changing and never stable. I kind of stumbled upon that because most of the poems when I was first writing it, they were almost written with like multiple personality disorder. The sentence would begin with I, and then the thought would suddenly transition to we. And I had this moment kind of halfway through writing the book where I said, well, this I that I'm writing from, which is me, is actually a contingent of the we. It's part of the we, not mitigated by it, which is why the book speaks with such a pluralistic voice. That is to say, I was discovering as I wrote that every kind of pain and onus that I was writing about was actually in part owned by someone else as well, that it wasn't 
my own singularly, but it was a collective type of experience. One line that I almost kind of included in the book, but I think still underscored so much of what I was thinking was by Jericho Brown from The Tradition, in which he writes, sometimes we ain't everybody, essentially. And I was trying to think who at any given time might be left out of this we and how can I push back on that? Well, it's a very uh, commanding voice as well. I almost would say authoritative. And that's a compliment. I mean, I think it's able to say these large things about the we uh, in ways that people don't always do in poetry now. Uh, Did you have any caution there or was that just how it came out and you had no choice? You know, I mean, a poem like Lucid, he says, what we would seem stripped down like a winter tree. Our scars are the brightest parts of us. I mean, these are wonderful declarations. How are you able to feel so confident in them? Mm. Thank you for that. When I was writing these types of, for lack of a better word, declarations in the book, it wasn't out of a feeling of trying to sound confident, though I'm glad that that's how it comes off. I think it actually comes from a deep place of questioning and of doubt, which is why I think so many of the lines in the poem are actually questioned just without a question mark. If parts sound confident, I think it's because they've come out of those moments of deep self-inquiry. And so when you've hit such a deep abyss of doubt, I think as an individual and as a people, you start to look for those types of stones or pillars that we know to be true. I love how you put that. I'm really struck too by some of the shape poems that are in the book, uh, ones like shaped almost like an urn. Um, they call to mind, you know, George Herbert and that long tradition and, and you know, 60s concrete poetry, but you don't see it that much. How did you decide on doing that? I mean, I, you know, for me, poems don't decide or I don't decide the poems decide. Was that the case or, you know, it seemed uh, experimental in, in the best possible way? Thank you so much. I think for me, that was really just my own self-challenge. So often I think people conceive of me as a spoken word poet, which I'm so grateful for. But as someone with a speech impediment, my first kind of interactions with poetry was actually on the page. That was where I felt most free because that was where I had a voice. So when I was writing this book, I wanted to feel that full gambit of what it means to command the white space, as I was referring to in the case of Tracy K. Smith. And so not just kind of making shapes for the sake of making shapes, but what those contours in themselves would do to my writing and demand of my poetry. And so in so many of the poems, I think if you look at it, it might appear to a reader as if I wrote words and in that process built that shape. It's actually, I think, a bit more like sculpting, that I had a whole lot on the page, hundreds and hundreds of words. And from there, I had to take a scalpel and shape it. And so to make a poem in the shape of a whale (laughs) demanded and required so much of me because it meant I had to ensure every word belonged there or else a word that didn't necessitate that space was going to end up 
making a tail misshape. And all that is to say, the shapes were great opportunities for continued learning of language. Well, the new book starts with ship manifest, as we've said, it's a kind of prome or preamble to the book. Uh, But it ends with the hill we climb, perhaps they were written opposite from that. But this poem that you grace the inaugural stage with ends the book. Uh, Tell us about that journey. I will say almost every single poem in the collection, save for maybe two, were written after the hill we climb. And so they weren't just written in a specific pandemic cultural moment, but it was written in a specific moment of my own life in which I was trying to continue my poetry and my craft while living a life that was a lot more visible (laughs) and in many ways a lot more uh, demanding and busy than something I had ever experienced before. And so the reason that I put Ships Manifest at the beginning of the book and then the hill we climb at the kind of tail end was I wanted to use that moment that I'd had at the inauguration, not as kind of an end game or an end point, really, despite it being at the finale, but more so as a jumping off point. So I actually reread The Hill We Climb because I was writing this book and had no idea what to talk about. And I had no idea how to approach this huge, massive moment that we're living through. And I just started at the beginning of The Hill We Climb, where I talk about braving the belly of the beast, the loss we carry, a sea we must wade. And so I took that idea of carrying in the sea and ships and beast to become an overarching motif in the book because I wanted it to be a moment by which we could venture out and explore all of those other aspects that were left unsaid in the hill we climb. Not because they weren't important, but because I didn't have the time in that specific day. And so now that I have the time and the space in the white pages, what was left unsaid that now can be unerased. I was going to wait to ask you, but I, I think now's a good time to ask, what was that like being faced with the white page to write The Hill We Climb? <laughs> that was so terrifying. <laughs> and writing this book was so frightening. I mean, all of it was just Every single day I was faced with so much doubt, especially I think with the hill we climb. In my head, I was living with this kind of grand idea of the stakes that if I go up there and do poorly, it's not only kind of a shame for me, but it's a shame kind of on my country. It's a shame because how often after me, would there be a young poet of color selected if I did poorly and that was seen as representative of my race or my gender or my age or my class? And at the same time, it was trying to write an inaugural poem while we had seen something such as the January 6th insurrection, which made the inauguration, I think, to many people feel untenable. Like, I didn't even expect the inauguration to happen after that. All that is to say, when I was writing, I was writing in a great degree of liminality and of dubiousness, which made it all the harder (laughs) to write something um, that felt hopeful and something that felt optimistic. So when writing, I try not to ignore 
all of those kind of shadows and demons dancing around me, but actually to play with them and to nod at them and speak to them and let that be one of the undercurrent voices of the poem. Well, it's such a rich tradition, but also it's such a tough one, as you indicate. Um, Did you have to keep it secret? Tell us about that process a little bit. So I want to say either like December 31st or January 1st, it was like New Year's Day. I found out I was going to be the inaugural poet, danced around my apartment in my socks, probably looked crazy. And (laughs) only a few people knew at the time, like, I waited a little bit and told my mom uh, just because I I knew it was going to knock both our socks off. And I I mostly kept it secret because I was so afraid of failing. And I felt that the more I told people, the more I was kind of baiting my own luck. Also that and the inaugural committee was like, don't tell anybody (laughs) until we announced it. So it was like both that and like waiting Um, Until that day, me being like, okay, I'll wait. But I'm telling my mom and I'm telling my dog, though she doesn't know (laughs) what I'm saying. (laughs) And so then it was announced and I could speak a lot more openly. But I will say in the the week that I was writing it, because it took around six or seven days, uh, whenever my friends would text me or call, I'd be like, I am sorry, but I cannot interact with human beings at that time. I mean, I spent every single day from morning to night writing and working on the poem and just ruminating about it. And it was almost like a fever. It was almost like being sick, forgetting to eat, reminding myself to do the basic ministrations of hygiene. And I wish I could say that that is a unique experience to this poem, but I can say that was what it was like writing the entirety of Call Us What We Carry. It was almost like being possessed by something that wasn't myself, but was myself but greater, but also more demanding. So <laughs> that's an amazing week. And it, it certainly has resonated from the stage and beyond. Um, it's such a powerful poem. It's also such a summation of many traditions, the inaugural tradition, but also that tradition has emerged as a powerful black women poet tradition. Were you aware of that when you were writing? Of the tradition that would emerge or the one I was coming from? <laughs> yes, both. <laughs> both. Uh, well said. I, I like that. Um, I, I was thinking of my Angelou, Elizabeth Alexander, the, your, some of your predecessors. Who've oh, come on, son. <laughs> of course. Of course. Um, I pray at the Holy Trinity that is my Angelou and Elizabeth Alexander and, you know, the Phyllis Wheatleys, all these great Black poetesses who have been called to write these exceptional occasional poems. And so when I was writing The Hill We Climb, I did do a lot of kind of basically a lit review of inaugural poems. There haven't been that many um, because it's pretty much so a modern tradition, which makes it all the more thrilling that Black women are part of it. And to see if this is the kind of heritage that I'm existing in, how do I both fit and also change this very same legacy that I'm existing in? So that's why I think I was a bit more decisive of doing things like using my hands, which is, um, I think, an important part of my own self-performance. I was nervous because I hadn't seen anyone else kind of do it in that way on that stage. We tend to think of the inauguration as a bit more formal, a bit more masculine, and even I'd say sometimes a bit more cold because it literally um, takes place in January on the East Coast. And so 
I wanted to add some more youth and warmth and vibrancy by using my hands, by wearing bright colors, by um, showing up with Afro braids. Uh, so I, I love the tradition I was existing in, and I also wanted to expand it at the same time. Terrific. I want to ask a little bit about you becoming a poet. Um, you got named the Youth Poet Laureate in 2017, a ceremony I was at, actually. And can you tell us about that experience? Oh my gosh, full circle moment. <laughs> yeah, I was there. Oh my gosh, a long, long time ago. Wow, wow, wow. Um, I remember that night and also it's, it feels like 20 years ago. So to answer <laughs> your great question, I started writing pretty young. I want to say maybe five or six. It wasn't good. It wasn't legible and it wasn't articulate. But I was enraptured by stories and storytelling. I didn't know that that was a craft or a career. And then around kind of early elementary school, I found out, oh, hey, you can do this as a profession. Kept writing, had some phenomenal English teachers, which I feel like so many of us are fortunate to have. And when I was in high school and had been writing poetry for several years, there was an opportunity to apply to be the inaugural Youth Poet Laureate of Los Angeles. It was an initiative that was spearheaded by the great nonprofit Urban Word or the National Youth Poet Laureate Program. And so I applied, sent in some poems, and I was fortunate enough to receive that title later to receive a title of Youth Poet Laureate of the West, and then ultimately after an application process to be selected as the inaugural Youth Poet Laureate of the United States, which you were there for at the ceremony in New York City. And it was just so staggering, and I still feel so grateful to have had that opportunity because it was just an exciting moment of saying Poetry is having, I, I really want to say, this renaissance. And if it's going to continue and thrive, then young people have to have just as much of a microphone in the institutions that we hold most dear in literature as um, the aged kind of older ones. Well said. Well, you've certainly borne that torch forward. And this recent book, I feel like you, you put it well. You said you're trying to write an occasional book, mm -hmm. but it occurs to me that you wrote it in record time, um, were, were, was it a similar kind of fever? You know, and how do you balance sort of all these opportunities you uh, alluded to with the poetry itself? Um, thank you for recognizing <laughs> the difficulty by which this book was born. I will say to anyone listening, never attempt to write a book in three and a half months. Just don't do it to yourself. Don't do it to your body. Don't do it to your team. Don't do it to your computer. Um, it was a book that was produced in the word that you used, um, that I also used, in a, a fever. I'm trying to even think of a, a more precise word to use, but that's kind of the only thing I know, almost like a, a fever dream, because I wanted to write it so urgently because I thought that the task of capturing the emotionality of this moment was so important. And it's something that I needed to read now, and I felt like others would hopefully appreciate reading now that it wasn't something that could wait or be delayed, that with every passing day, there was more pressing emergency status of telling our stories, documenting what we're going through, if not for ourselves, then for the generations that would follow. I didn't want to look up 
and have forgotten <laughs> what the sunlight looked like um, at the inauguration or what it felt like to spend another five straight day in my house without going anywhere. All of those types of specificities of the existence I wanted to capture quickly, not for the sake of vapidness or speed, but for the sake of their preservation um, so that they wouldn't be kind of lost in the wind. Do you think of it as testimony then? Is it a repository? You know, these are all words from Ship's Manifest. Is, is that how you thought of it? Yeah, I think I thought of it as both a repository, which seems a bit kind of, I think, inactive because we put like time capsules in the earth. And then I also thought of it as a testimony, which felt a bit more active and defensive in my case. As I was writing it, I literally was imagining the questions that I would have been asking let's say, uh, my great-grandmother, um, as she was still alive, about what it was like to go through the 1918 pandemic. So I was thinking that although they have yet to be born, next generations still have questions. They still have an interrogation that they have every right to have had about why they will have inherited the earth, the planet, the society that will come to them and so I think that was one of the things that made the book most frightening to write, that it felt like kind of taking the witness stand and giving my testimony. You have to answer for yourself because there has to be a voice that is recording what occurred, if not in defense, then in truth and in honesty. It's hard to top that. But I wondered about how you see poetry more broadly. Do you think mm. poetry more broadly is thinking about these things? I mean, I see a lot of poetry in my in my job, but um, <laughs> do you think people are wrestling with this? Do you see that out there? Oh, I mean, I would love to hear your perspective on this. I love the casual drop of, oh, you know, I see a little bit of poetry in my job. Okay, says poetry editor. But um, I, I absolutely think so. Um, I, I think that poetry is not only experiencing a renaissance that is to say like a, a rebirth, but that this birth is different, that we're changing, we're transforming, we're metamorphosizing. And I think there also has been a, a larger type of movement to try to experiment with how it feels yet again to speak with a plural collective voice. And so there's so many poetry books that I read um, whose tradition I'm very grateful to be participating in, where they speak to that community, whether, you know, Don't Call Us Dead by Denise Smith or If They Come For Us by Fatima Asghar. Oh, or even um, On Earth or Briefly Gorgeous Ocean Vong. These titles which speak to a we or an us or an our. And I think that's so exciting because the people who are doing that type of plural speak are those who for so long were left out of the plural. Um, it's people of color, it's queer people, um, it's indigenous people who are saying we belong in the we as much as anybody. And we are reclaiming not just our time, but um, our shared humanity. Well, I'm really excited for folks to get their hands on this new book. I think it's really tremendous. Uh, and Amanda, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Ships Manifest by Amanda Gorman, as well as Tracy K. Smith's Declaration, can be found on NewYorker.com. Tracy K. Smith's latest book is Such Color, New and Selected Poems. Amanda Gorman's new collection is Call Us 
what we carry. You may subscribe to this podcast, The Fiction Podcast, The Writer's Voice Podcast, and The Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropadope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses, with help from Hannah Eisenman. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new a translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> From P.